I'm going to break the ice a little bit. I'm going to uh, recall a story that I've told you before. And the first time that I heard this story, it was conveyed to me as an actual news event. So I've not done my independent research to see whether or not it is so. But I'm going to convey this to you, okay? In in Pennsylvania, in the USA, there was uh, th- there's an area called Amish country, if you're familiar with that. It's actually fascinating if you ever get a chance to go over and see it. It's fascinating. All these people they they live they live without electricity. They have no buttons on their clothes. They, they do all these types of just very unique and backwards uh, kind of things, and they and they do it in the name of God, which isn't cool, um, in my opinion, to try to enforce a whole way of life on people. But they they don't have any electricity, but but they will buy things from people who use electricity to make things. So sometimes they'd have to go through the busy part of town to get the supplies that they need for their farms and take horse and buggy through, pick it up, collect it, and go back through. And, and one day, uh, this Amish fellow was going through the, the middle of town to pick up the supplies for his farm. Horse-drawn carriage with his little dog inside. And as he's going through this busy intersection, and those of you who've heard this, act like you haven't, okay? Um, as they're going through this busy intersection, uh, this beautiful red sports car comes speeding through trying to beat the light and smacks in to this man. He, his horse, his dog go flying across uh, the pavement. And um, so the Amish man be- begins to come through. He was knocked out, obviously, in, in horrible pain. And 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 so um, just to make a long story short, I said something about that a few weeks ago, didn't I? To make a long story short, um, there was a trial not long after that. He was in, he had, he had terrible injuries. And, uh, he was sued by the man in the sports car, taken to court by the man who ran the light and, and ran into him. And, uh, and so he was called to the stand. The Amish man shows up with his hardbound cast, his neck in a cast and all this type of stuff. And, um, he takes the stand and the prosecutor says, we have reason to believe that you're faking your injuries. He's trying to find some type of a loophole out of it. And uh, he said, why ever would you say that? He said, well, we have a statement from you taken by, an, by a sworn officer just after the accident. And here's the quote from you. You tell me if this is true or not. I've never felt better in all of my life. Did you say that? And he said, yes. In the courtroom, gasp. And he said, but you have to take it in the context in which that statement was given. So let me let me explain. The first thing I on the pavement, and I could hear the police sirens coming closer and closer and closer. And I'm hoping someone's coming to check on me. And finally, I look out of the corner of my eye and I see this man get out of his police car. Mind you, it's America. And he gets out of his police car and he walks over to my horse, and my horse is neighing and making all kinds of noises. And he checks on my horse and he takes the nine millimeter pistol out of his holster. And he shoots my horse in the head, puts him out of his misery, which was quite merciful given the context. And then he walked over to my dog, and my dog had a broken back, I could tell. He couldn't even move. Same nine millimeter, shoots my dog in the head. And he walked over to me, and he said, sir, how are you feeling? And I said, I've never felt better in all of my life. Context is king. So... What we believe about the truth must never be taken out of context. And I'm loving that we're going through the book of Acts one passage at a time. One story that builds upon another account that builds upon another account. 
that make that forms one huge overall big idea in scripture and i love it and i love that last week alan dealt with a lot of what we're going to be talking about this week so i'm not going to be in depth going through a lot of the things that he discussed last week but i hope that we can keep things in context and i think that's what god's trying to do here he's trying to keep what has just happened in acts chapter 10 in context so that it will give it uh, uh, more power going forward and and i'll explain that power here in just a few moments. But look in verse number one. I just want to start there and walk through this. I'm going to give you a little bit of the, the Matt Green version of the Bible here in just a minute, because uh, we're not going to go through this verse by verse. I'm just going to sum up a lot of, of what was said. But we'll start by reading verse number one. We'll also look at verses two and three together. But look at verse one. It says, Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So word got back. Um, to Jerusalem and the apostles that Cornelius and his household believed. This was monumental. Alan did a very good job of highlighting that last week. This was a, this was a huge moment in the history of the church. Look at verse 2 and 3. It reminds us that legalism is the enemy of grace. And we're going to park here for a few moments to, 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 to lay some foundation. Verse 2 says, And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision, mark that phrase, the circumcision, contended with them, saying, you went in to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Do you see the exclamation mark? It's outrage. So, so, as, so as Peter comes back from Jerusalem, there's this group of people waiting for him. And the Bible refers to them as the circumcision. The, the ESV renders it this way, the circumcision party. This was a group of people attempting to police followers of Jesus based upon their particular standards. By the way, this group is not just here in Acts 10 and 11. It was mentioned in Acts 10, I think, verse 45 or so. They're also mentioned in Romans, Galatians, Colossians, and Titus. So this is by no means isolated to the book of Acts here. Uh, they were a group of supposed believers in Christ and presumably former Pharisees. And they, they could have been believers in Christ and just got sidetracked. But why do you think they were trying to police everyone? Well, one, because they were likely former Pharisees, and that's what Pharisees do. Police everyone, right? Um, but, but, but two, because the circumcision, in inverted commas, believed that Christ died a substitutionary death on the cross, but that the priority was still to the Jews. So they still held to all of the Old Testament customs and even a lot of the rules that did not originate in Scripture. Some of the ones that originated in the Talmud and other writings. They believed that people should come to Christ, but the, the, that the vestibule, if you will, for Christianity was Judaism. So obviously, according to them, you need to be circumcised before you can come to Christ. They were outraged. He was eating with these uncircumcised people. And this is why they got the nickname the circumcision. And what they did not realize, I don't think so, is that they were elevating tradition over Scripture. Israel was not commanded to enter into the Gentiles' houses and eat with them, but they were also not commanded not to do that. There's nowhere in the Bible that I can find that they're actually commanded not to enter into the Gentiles' houses, except for when they were coming into the promised land, because God did not want them to get mingled up. Other than that, this is not a blanket command for all of Israel not to go into a Gentile's house. 
Now, some human rabbi, probably a Pharisee somewhere, had said it and it stuck with him, didn't it? And everyone just assumed it was God's command when it was a man's command. These people in verses 2 and 3 likely did have genuine faith in Christ. I think by the end of this passage that we're going to look in verse 18, we can maybe come to that conclusion. But as fragile human beings, they got distracted by other issues and had been led astray. And here's a really important principle to take away from these first few verses. Our standards and preferences should never be a higher priority than God's word. Our standards and preferences should never be a higher priority than God's word. Jesus came to deliver the Pharisees from believing that anyone or anything else was necessary before coming to him. Jesus said that he came to fulfill the law. That law that they were still holding to. He came to fulfill that law. They were no longer to look to their traditions and customs. They were now to look solely on Christ and His Word. And let's face it. We can get distracted too. We can allow secondary things to distract us from Christ. We can allow our time to be taken up with policing things. Like whether or not you did or didn't take the vaccine. And I'm not taking a side. Whether you read this version or that version of the Bible, whether you believe in this or that about the rapture, whether or not you share your faith this way or that way, it can distract us from Christ and His mission. If that's what our focus is on, our focus should be on Christ and His mission, not secondary issues. The primary issue is Jesus Christ and His mission. And it's not wrong to think about all of these other issues and have an opinion on them. But when those things become our mission, when those things are the things that we primarily focus on policing, then we've become distracted and are off course from the true mission that Christ gave us as the church. And Peter's about to give his testimony to bring them back on course. Peter's basically quoting verbatim what Alan preached about last, last week. Um, three different times his account is given in some variable, which is which is incredible. It's unprecedented in Scripture, actually. So, so, so I'm going to sum up what the big ideas of the testimony are. Again, this is probably the Matt Green version more than the actual Scripture. But, but verses 4 to 6, Peter, he's, he's speaking to them, and he basically says, so remember how revival came to the Samaritans, right? Uh, well, I was in Joppa, and God came to me in a dream. And he showed me something very unusual. Remember we saw the vision of the sheet coming down the four corners. We saw the, the unclean animals walking. And God says, rise, Peter. Kill and eat. Right? And Peter's like, I can't eat something like that. I'm, I'm forbidden to do so in the writings. And God says, do not call unclean uh, that which I've sanctified, basically. So here's, here's, here's Peter. He's having this vision. God is trying to teach him what's going on. It's a very, very unusual vision, but it's profound because Peter knows that as a Jew, hey, that's unclean. But God is saying, do not call common what I have declared clean. Verse 8 tells us that um, Peter was a bit reluctant in some ways, you know, just so you know, I was reluctant and I argued with God about this as per usual, right? Peter did this on multiple occasions. 
But verse 9 says that God told Peter that what he'd made clean um, was... Okay? So verse number 10. Okay, we're going to park there just for a few minutes. He communicated this to me three times in a row, Peter says. Look, now this was done three times and all were drawn up again into heaven. In other words, God showed him this vision over and over again. Three different times. And this is a nice little added wrinkle as far as I'm concerned. Why did God show him the same vision three times? Why is that important? Why do you think? Perhaps this is an appropriate question. How many times did Peter deny the Lord? Three times. I see such grace in God showing it to Peter three times. It's as if God is saying that though Peter refused to be a witness of him in that courtyard, God was in his grace entrusting him with being a witness for Christ. You know, Peter was going to be a vessel that God used to bring the first Gentile and his, in his household, that's a non-Jewish person, to faith in Christ through the influence of the church. But this chapter, it's, it's, it's incredible because he's, he's already stood up and preached to the thousands of Jews in Acts 2, hasn't he? Thousands of people converted to the Lord Jesus Christ in Acts 2. He's already stood up before believers and preached Christ in the face of persecution in, in, in Acts 4 and onward. And it's going to happen again in the following chapters. But this chapter is a beautiful picture of Peter's restoration as he is used to take the gospel one step farther. And you may be sat here this morning as a child of God, loathing over a sinful mistake that you've made. You may be thinking that God doesn't want you and that He could never use someone that is messed up like you have. I'm sure Peter felt this way too, didn't he? But friend, if, if you will do as Peter did, if you will go away to weep bitterly over your sins and find your place of repentance before God, God will use you again. He will restore you. And just as He had open arms and a purpose for Peter, He has open arms and a purpose in His mission for you. In verse 11, He, he tells about how there was suddenly, just in, in the midst of this vision, there were these three men in His actual presence standing there from Caesarea. And they were telling Him about uh, what happened. It was, it was he and Simon Tanner, Simon the Tanner that was there. And verse 12 says that the Holy Spirit gave him assurances and told him to go with them. You can imagine he would be apprehensive, but the Holy Spirit said to go. And six of his own Jewish Christian brethren came with him to this Gentile man's house. Look at verse number 12. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me and we entered the man's house. Now, now since we're doing the numbers thing, let's ask another question. Why six people? Well, the law tells us in the mouth of two or three witnesses, an account will be confirmed, right? Two or three witnesses would hold up in the court of law. But seven witnesses, that's Peter included. Think about that. He took six people with him, and there were seven of them. Seven witnesses was case closed. Okay? So this was huge. Remember, all that uh, the believers had was the Old Testament, the spoken words of Christ, and, and the teachings and declarations of the apostles. That's all they had at this point. Peter knew that this was a monumental moment and potentially contentious. People were essentially following the words of the apostles at this point. How can we know that they're not leading us astray? So Peter makes sure that 
Whatever happened, the truth would prevail. He goes out of his way to make sure seven people were there. And here's a really, really important principle. Let's not get lost in all of the, 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 the details and formality. Here's a really important principle. Experience is great, but the truth is greater. But let's, let's phrase it this way. A spiritual experience that is not rooted in the truth of God's word is an experience you should not seek. A spiritual experience that is not rooted in the truth of God's word is an experience that you should not seek. It's worth noting, by the way, that just knowing truth is not enough. Truth that we fail to apply is not true to us at all. It's not. We have to experientially apply truths to our lives. So experience is not a bad thing. But let me give you a heads up. If you come to me and say, I had this experience, or God said this to me, or God wants me to say this to you, and it doesn't find its origins in the truth of God's perfect word, then I'll reject your truth claim every single time. Without hesitation. And that may sound harsh, but I believe passionately that truth is found in Christ and His Word. And only in Christ and His Word. A spiritual experience that is not rooted in the truth of God's Word is an experience that you should not seek. By, be, be confronted by the truth of God's Word and let that move you to experience. So Peter carries on in his account, verse 13, an angel appeared to this Gentile and told him to call for him. In verse 14, God said it was Peter's job to tell him and his family how to be saved. Verse 15, just like Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell on these Gentiles. Now let's park there for a minute, verse number 15. This is really, really important stuff about the Holy Spirit. Let me just say first, the Holy Spirit is a precious gift. He's a person. He's the third person of the Trinity. But God has given us the Holy Spirit. He's a precious gift. It says in verse 15, And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. And now as Gentile believers, nearly 2,000 years removed from this moment, we have the precious Holy Spirit guiding us. The precious Holy Spirit to speak Christ to us, to show Christ to us, to lead us into truth, to correct us when we're wrong, to give us comfort when we need comfort, to produce Christ-likeness in us. The Holy Spirit is a precious gift. But then verse 17 tells us that every believer shares in being indwelt by the same Holy Spirit. Every believer, every single one of us, we share in the same Holy Spirit. Look at verse 17. Um, it, it says, this, the same gift, as he gave us. The same gift as he gave us. What's wonderful about the body of Christ is we are a body that equally share each and every one of us in the same measure of the indwelling Holy Spirit. It's, it's phenomenal. You don't have more of the Holy Spirit than I have. And I don't have more of the Holy Spirit than you have. He indwells us we are sealed by the Spirit of promise. But also the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit results in faith. Notice he said, when we believed. The work of the Holy Spirit results in faith. And that's why the Holy Spirit is so precious in our lives. He unites us together and he gives us faith to live for him. To live for Christ. Look at verse number 16. Uh, this this was confirmed by 
Scripture, the words of Christ, that that Jesus' followers would be baptized with the Holy Spirit, right? And, And he's quoting here the words of Christ. He's quoting the words of Christ. Again, as we mentioned a few weeks back, Peter is only trying to copy what he has seen and heard from Christ. Christ said that this would happen, so I'm just going to try to do what he said. Essentially what Peter's doing. He's, he's, he's faking it till he makes it, but in the right way. He's trying to be like Jesus as much as he can. And we can't do this without the help of the Holy Spirit. Peter is keeping Christ at the center of his thinking, at the center of his practice. But we cannot do this without the help of the Holy Spirit. But our great goal should be to be like Jesus, to speak like him, to to be involved in his work, to react as he would react, to love like he would love. And we see that desire here in Peter to keep Christ at the center. I love the activity that we have here at the church. I love everything that we're doing. I love that we're reaching out to the youth in the community. I love gems that we have a voice among the seniors as well. I love all the things that we're doing. I love going and doing the evangelism in the community. Listen, if if Jesus isn't the center of it, it's nothing. Keep Jesus at the center of everything that we do as a church, but keep Jesus at the center of everything that you do as a family, as an individual. That's what life is all about. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Moving on, verse 17, uh, Peter basically says, how can we deny a work that God has done in giving faith to, to them who believe in Christ. Let's park in verse 18 for a moment, okay? Let's read it together. When they heard these things, they became silent. When they, who, who's they? Well, included in this number were the circumcision, right? So these same people that were criticizing at the beginning. When they heard these things, they became silent and glorified God saying, well, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. After Peter's testimony, as he gives scripture to support his truth claims, after Peter's testimony, the Jews in Jerusalem had no arguments left. So they glorified God that he'd given repentance to the Gentiles. So I want to give you an overview of all that we've kind of looked at. And I'm sorry I've not dealt in depth with some of these things. I'm trying not to be uh, repetitive in what was said yesterday, or last week, not yesterday. Might feel like it for you, but. Uh, here's, here's a little overview. Here's, here's what I believe Peter's trying to communicate in these verses. The first thing is this. The old mission is the current mission. The old mission is the current mission. What was the mission at the beginning of Acts? We have to ask ourselves that question. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You may have heard this verse a thousand times in your life. Please listen. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, they had been witnesses in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2, in Judea and Samaria in the previous three chapters. And now Peter has gone into the unknown, the Gentiles. We're going to see that this moment is going to be the canon through which the church is sent out to the ends of the earth. This moment right here. Not just Peter's vision, but Peter taking it to Jerusalem and the church saying, glory to God. God has opened the door to the Gentiles. Seven years have passed at this point. Did you know that? When we get to chapter 11, seven years have passed since Pentecost. 
Seven years, the church hasn't even started reaching the uttermost. The ends of the earth. But after this moment, wow. Wait for our studies in the following verses in the next few weeks. I can't wait. The point is, seven years later, the mission was the same. And the church, nearly 2,000 years later, the mission is the same today. We must be reaching out into our Jerusalem, our Judea and Samaria. What do I mean? We must be reaching out into Heron Cross, right? We have to. We have to be reaching out to people in this community. You have to be reaching out to people in the community in which you live if you don't live in Heron Cross. I don't live in Heron Cross, so I have a responsibility to be reaching my neighbors where I'm standing. We go into the different town centers. You're welcome to join us. Monday, Hanley from 12 to 1. Tuesday, Newcastle from 12 to 1. Wednesday, Longton from 12 to 1. You can join us anytime. We're just trying to get the gospel out to people in our Jerusalem. But then our Judea. Listen, England's a small country. Let's just say the the Midlands. We should be doing what we can to try to support people as they preach the gospel in the Midlands. Find churches that we can get behind and help and assist in this effort. But what about the uttermost? What about the ends of the earth? How are you reaching out to the ends of the earth? Jesus literally died for sinners and rose again to give them eternal life. That literally happened. And if it literally happened, then there are so many different ramifications for that truth. We mentioned not long ago about the two Moravian men who sold themselves into slavery to preach to an island full of slaves who'd never heard the gospel. They forfeited their lives and liberties to tell people about Jesus. Can you imagine that? And what was their mantra? Can anyone remember? May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. I'm going to repeat that and let it sink in. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. And here's the question. Does Jesus deserve anything in return for his great sacrifice? Christ put his love for sinners on full display when he died for their sins. Christ deserves what? Praise, adoration, and glory from all of mankind. Those Moravian men sold themselves into slavery to tell people that they didn't even know. And we can't be bothered to tell people that we see every day. Now, this isn't meant to be a browbeating moment. Please don't hear me wrong. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. This is meant to put things back in perspective. What greater reason is there for sharing our faith? What greater reason is there for witnessing of the gospel that has changed our lives? May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. That's the greatest reason. This was their mantra. And you know, our church has a a mantra of sorts as well, doesn't it? If you ever looked on our website in the past decade, Uh, you would have seen this phrase, to know Christ and to make Him known. To know Christ and to make Him known. And my question is, how are we pursuing this? And I want to bring you back to the original thought. The old mission is the current mission. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, 
and the uttermost. Number two, the old means are the current means. The old means are the current means. Now, let, let me just explain for a moment. It is by grace through faith in the gospel alone that men, women, boys, and girls are saved. By grace through faith in the gospel alone. Repentance is mentioned in verse number 18. Repentance. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of action. And, and we must all personally turn from our sin because though, though it may not be fashionable, or socially acceptable in this day and time, we are all still sinners. Every single one of us. And we must all personally turn from our sin and faith in anything else, including ourselves, and turn to Christ and Christ alone for eternal salvation. Every single one of us must do that. Only He can save us from the wrath to come. Only what Jesus did upon the cross as our substitute can do that. He said it's finished and He meant it. And faith in only His sacrificial death on your behalf and His resurrection can provide you eternal forgiveness and eternal life. See, the means are still the same. The same thing that was saving people back then can save people today. But the new method still accomplishes the old mission. I want you to hear what I'm being, what's being said here. He went to the Gentiles for the first time. No one had done this before. It was unheard of. But he took, he went with the same mission and he took the same means. You hear what I'm saying? He went with the same purpose and he took the same gospel message, but he did it in a different way. He took it to a different group this time. He took it to a different person this time. And we're coming to a close here. And I want us to reflect on a few questions. I wonder, has God laid on your heart someone that you can share the gospel with this week? Someone new? Some place new? May God bless these thoughts to our hearts. The old mission is still the new mission, the, the current mission. The old means, the gospel, grace by faith, is still the, the current means. But you and I, as we're following God's mission, doing God's work empowered by God's Spirit, we have to be looking for new people to be sharing the gospel with every day. That's our job. It's not easy. It may be, be an ongoing conversation. Those are the best kinds, aren't they? An ongoing conversation, a little bit here and a little bit there. But let's come full circle. May the Lamb that was slain receive the reward of His suffering. Let's go out from this place as an army, <laughs> a little battalion of people in Heron Cross here, not fighting a physical war, a physical battle, but going and fighting a spiritual war, a war that Christ, through the Holy Spirit, is fighting for the hearts and souls of men, women, boys, and girls. What greater, what greater responsibility and privilege could you ever dream of ever having? May God bless these thoughts to our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we're convicted. I'm convicted. People that I've witnessed to once before that should go back and witness to again. People that I've not witnessed to that I need to witness to. 
But I'm convicted, Lord, that I'm trying things in my own strength. That I've not been trusting in the Holy Spirit at times to speak through me as I share the gospel. And I pray that you would teach me again what it means to depend upon your Holy Spirit to do that. I pray that we would be a church that would be so closely in tune with the precious Holy Spirit and His work in our lives that as we communicate to the unsaved world the glorious gospel of Christ, it would make an indelible impression on them and that they would be saved. Make us faithful, effective witnesses for you because what you did on the cross What it demands that I cannot remain inactive. Truth that is unapplied is not true to me at all. God, help me. Help me to be sharing the gospel and applying the gospel in my life. In Jesus' name. Amen.